0: Mark chapter 11, by the way, if you don't know about the building project, we have a CD on it, why we're, we are building, what it entails, uh, details of the project, you can get that back at the CD table. I encourage you to do so if you weren't here on the day that we talked about it. Mark chapter 11, today, we are, by the grace of God, going to go all the way through chapter 17, I mean verse 17, <laughs> wouldn't that be amazing? that would be miraculous just to get to chapter 12 verse 17 is going to be miraculous for us we're going to move through some stuff today lord we ask that you would bless us as we open your word we ask that you would cause us to come before you with open and humble hearts ready to hear what you have to say that you would give us by your spirit a mind of understanding we know that these things concerning your word they are spiritually understood by your spirit alive in us, you have made us spiritual people. So God, speak to us, give us understanding, teach us, cause us to be people that would be receptive to you, not stiff-necked or obstinate or rebellious, but yielded to you in our inner mans. Teach us about those things, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. In our text today, we are right in the middle of the Passion Week. The events that we're going to look at today took place on Wednesday of the Passion Week. Of course, the cross taking place Friday-ish, and the triumphal entry taking place on Sunday. It is not only the Passion Week that we call it as Christians, but back then, for the Jews, it was the Passover Week. Passover, of course, being the celebration of when God delivered the Jews from Egypt, You with me? So all of Israel was gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. On the Sunday night of the Passover, every father of every household would be choosing a little lamb. It is the lamb that they would slaughter on Friday in commemoration of the time that they were delivered once again from Egypt because they had the blood of the lamb over their doorposts. And so the angel of death skipped over them. They were delivered by God into the promised land. So, in this week, all the Israelites are gathered in Jerusalem for the celebration. That Sunday night, every father is choosing that lamb at the exact moment that Jesus was making his triumphal entry. Remember, we spoke extensively about this, that the triumphal entry was the prophetic and technical first coming of Jesus Christ. That is when he was presented to the nation and the world as the Messiah, the Savior, the Lamb of God. Remember John the Baptist in John chapter 1, when Jesus came into view, he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So, on that Sunday night, the triumphal entry, Jesus is presented as the lamb, the lamb, capital T, capital L, for the nation, for the world. Every father was choosing a lamb for his house. The families would take this lamb into their house for four days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Friday night at twilight, it was slaughtered. Why did they bring the little lamby into the house for four days? Two reasons. Number one, to observe it, to see that it was spotless and without blemish. We know that the Old Testament said that any sacrifice that was given unto the Lord had to be perfect. You didn't bring the funky, nasty, messed up lamb. You brought the best lamb you had before the Lord. So it was in the house with the family for four days to be observed that it was spotless without problem. But number two, that the little kids might become attached to it. This is somewhat gruesome, but true. They would have this little lamb with them for four days and the kids would think, this little lamb is so wonderful. And then Friday evening, the father would slaughter the lamb and apply the blood for the sacrifice. The kids would be thinking in their minds, why? This little lamb was innocent. He was perfect, he was beautiful, he was wonderful in every way. And there would be impressed upon the heart and the mind of every Jew in the land the reality and the seriousness of sin before God, that for forgiveness there was required a blood sacrifice. The wages of sin is death. And so if sin earns you death, the payment for that sin must be a life. Henceforth, Jesus Christ died upon the cross, a substitutionary death for you and I. He was the Lamb of God. And as the little lambs were observed in the house for four days, so Jesus would be observed in the house, the temple in Jerusalem, for that same four-day period. He would be observed by Israel to see that he was spotless and without sin. And they would see that he was wonderful and beautiful in every way. And when Jesus hung upon the cross, it would be forever impressed upon their hearts and subsequently ours. The reality of sin and the sacrifice that God made in his son to forgive us. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 tells us very clearly that Jesus was without sin. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 tells us we were not redeemed with perishable things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of the Lamb, the spotless and blameless Lamb that is Jesus Christ. So part of this period of Him being in the house and being observed has to do with our text today. The religious leaders coming to Him and testing Him in a series of areas. Not that the religious leaders were righteous and were in any place to judge God, but that God would prove his servant Christ righteous through their attacks. So we see the religious leaders come now in verse 27 of Mark 11. It says, first, and Jesus and his boys, that's the they, and they came to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you authority to do these things? What things? Well, the triumphal entry for one. Jesus rolled into Jerusalem down the Temple Mount, or down the Mount of Olives on to the Temple Mount, on a donkey fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. His disciples were singing from Psalm 118, which was understood by all of Israel to be a psalm about the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus, what gives you authority to present yourself as the Messiah? And if that weren't enough, Jesus, you curse the poor little fig tree, and then you roll up in the temple, and then you start overturning the tables, tossing the chairs, chasing out the money changers. Who gives you the authority to do this and to say, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations? Jesus, who do you think you are? Now, who is posing this question? the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. The chief priests were sort of politicians. Uh, By this time, because of the Roman occupation, they were installed by Rome. And so they had themselves in a political situation, uh, trying to balance the interests of the Israelis and the Roman government that was there at the time. So they were supposed to be just wonderful priests, but they had become politicians. The scribes were the interpreters of the Old Testament that put upon the people undue burdens. Read about that throughout the gospel. And the elders were the members of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the 70-member ruling party in Israel. They were to oversee the religious life of the nation. Now, this representative body, were the guardians of Israel's religious life. We know that they had become corrupt. We know that they had become overly religious, concerned with external things, and had moved away from the heart of God. But as religious leaders, they had a responsibility, according to Deuteronomy chapter 18, to question anyone that seemed to be or claimed to be a prophet. So they come to Jesus as they would have anyone else that presented themselves to be the Messiah. And there were many false messiahs in the day. But we know from the text, we'll see in a moment, that they didn't come with pure motives. In John chapter 11, they had already decided that they didn't like Jesus and were going to kill him. It was just before our text here, John chapter 11. They didn't agree with him. They saw Jesus as a threat to their authority, their position, and they decided to do away with him. And so now... They ask Jesus this question, by what authority? What's your deal? Hoping to capture him some way. And in verse 29, Jesus says to them, well, let me ask you a question. And you answer me, and then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. That was in that time a normal Jewish uh, argument type of thing. You come and you ask a question, and the rabbi would answer by posing another question. It was normal in the culture. You even experience some of that today. So Jesus answers their question with a question, a very pointed one, very important. He says in verse 30, here's what he asks them. Was the baptism of John, that is John the Baptist, from heaven, that means God, or from men? Answer me. When he says the baptism of John, he means the whole of John's ministry. John the Baptist, he gets them to think here. You guys remember John the Baptist, he's saying to them. Here's how I will answer the question. Here's how you're going to know where I get my authority. Answer this question. John the Baptist. His ministry, was that from God or did he just make that up? Was it from men? Now, what was the ministry of John the Baptist? John the Baptist was the one sent to prepare the way for Jesus. You remember that. He was the one who was to make the path straight for the coming of the Messiah. And he was the one who first identified Jesus as the Messiah in John chapter 1. And so he says to the religious leaders, if you want your answer about where my authority comes from, think about where John the Baptist's authority came from. Was it from heaven or was it from men? Now, this puts the religious leaders in a bit of a quandary. They're in a bit of a situation now. Read on, verse 31. And they begin reasoning among themselves, saying, Oh, man. If we say from heaven, then he's going to say then why didn't you believe him? But should we say from men, and then the author gives us commentary, they were afraid of the multitude for all considered John to have been a prophet indeed. You see the problem that Jesus posed with this question to them? Okay, if we say that John the Baptist was from heaven, then then, then he's going to say, then why didn't you believe John the Baptist when he identified me as the Messiah? So we can't say that he's from heaven because we don't want him to be the Messiah. But if we say that John the Baptist's ministry was only from men and that he wasn't from God, the multitude is going to flip out and spaz out on us because all of Israel considered him to be a true prophet. What are we going to do here? Listen to me. As long as you play politics in life, you will never have a clear idea of what to do. The situation was with the leaders was they were no longer asking what was true or what was right. They were saying, well, what is safe? What is going to preserve our position and offend the least amount of people? Dangerous place to be and never find yourself as a Christian in the place of these religious leaders. We are not called to be crowd-pleasers. We are called to be God-pleasers. The book of Romans says, let every man be a liar and let God be true. We Christians are not called to be politically correct. We are called to be biblically correct. You understand that? Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, For am I now seeking the favor of men? Or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Paul said it very clearly if I am concerned about trying to please men, trying to be a crowd pleaser, overly concerned with what people think, I'll never be able to please God, and I'm no longer a servant of God. Listen, the world hates you, Christian. If you're not a Christian here, just trip out for a minute. Let me talk to the Christians. The world hates you. Jesus said that they would. Don't marvel. They hated me first. They're going to hate you, he said. Book of First John tells us that. You will never please the world. You only believe that there's one way to heaven. The world hates that. You believe that we will be held accountable for our sin. They hate that. You believe in a literal heaven and a literal hell. You believe that the Bible is the actual trustable word of God. You'll never please the world, so stop trying. If you're a Christian, your goal in life is to please God, to serve Him, to hold to His truth. The moment you try to be a man pleaser, you fall into a snare. Proverbs 29, verse 25. The fear of man brings a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. We are called as Christians to fear God, not fear men. We are called to be salt and light in this world. Salt meaning that we function as a preserving agent. A preserving agent, meaning if there is going to be any righteousness preserved in this world, it is to be by the Holy Spirit working through the church of God. Any standard of decency, any biblical standard raised up, it is to come forth from the word of God through you and I. We are called to be light in this world. That is to say, we are to shine the light of God in the dark places. Darkness is associated with confusion and non-truth. Light is associated with clarity and truth. We are to bring clarity and truth to the world through the word of God. Not politics, not rhetoric, not what the news has to say, not what so-and-so has to say, but according to God's word, we are to raise up and uphold a righteous standard in a crooked and perverse generation. Don't ever find yourself in the place of the religious leaders. I want you to realize that when Jesus answered their question with a question, he wasn't being evasive. He was simply saying to them, Look, I have already revealed myself and my prophet, John the Baptist. I don't need to tell you anymore. You're coming to me saying, Who are you? I've already demonstrated who I am. John the Baptist came, clearly pointing to me as the Messiah. In the same way, many people today say, well, God, if you're real, then do thus and so. You know what I mean? God, if you're real, then strike me dead right now. Then I'll know. Yeah, you would know then. Uh, last service said I didn't share this story with them. I thought for sure i had shared this. Someone gave me an article from a military newspaper about this teacher in a military class. Have I told you guys this? Okay, one person knows. Listen to me. Don't blow the story. Uh, True story, I don't read, I don't subscribe to military papers. I'm not a warmonger, so don't trip out, but someone gave me this article. So I got this article, and it's it's a true story. A teacher was teaching in one of the classes that the military guys had to go through. And for some reason, he got on the fact that there is no God. This teacher saying God doesn't exist. I don't know, maybe he was against foxhole religion. I don't know what was happening. But he stood in front of the class, and he said, I will prove to you that God doesn't exist. I will give God three minutes to strike me dead right now. And he stood in front of the, or to strike me down, I'm sorry. He wasn't so bold to say dead. To strike me down right now. And he stood in front of the class and he said, come on, God, if you're real, strike me down right now. You could imagine it was dead silent in the class. And a little time went by and he's standing here like this. And this man gets up out of the back row, walks right up to the instructor and, Knocks him flat on his back. Bam! Knocks him flat on his back. And the guy finally comes through and after all the commotion, he's like, what were you doing? And the guy said, God was busy. He sent me. But let me tell you why God did not strike that man down. Because God is under no obligation to demonstrate his existence to arrogant men. God is under no obligation to demonstrate his existence to arrogant men beyond that which he has already demonstrated. The book of Romans tells us that the evidence of God's existence is clearly seen in creation. That is, if you have a brain, you can look around and see that there is a creator. Beyond that, we have Scripture. Scripture clearly testifies to the existence, the character, and the nature of God. And so he's simply telling them, I've already given you guys the scriptures. I already sent you guys the prophets. Listen, very important principle here. I'm not going to tell you anything more until you receive what I've already spoken to you. So the Lord is saying to them, Here's a principle for you and I God does not teach us new truth if we have rejected the truth he has already revealed. Why would God teach us new truth if we have rejected what he has already revealed? That was the situation of these religious leaders. They had rejected John the Baptist and his testimony, and now they have the audacity to say, by what authority are you on? says, if you had accepted the testimony of John the Baptist, you would know. Turn to John chapter 7 as we illustrate this. John chapter 7, something very important here. John chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 10 for a little bit of um, context here. It says, when his brothers had gone up to the feast, that is the brothers of Jesus. John chapter 7, verse 10. When his brothers had gone up to the feast, then Jesus himself also went up, not publicly, but as it were, in secret. This is the time that he went to Jerusalem, a year prior to the time that we're speaking about in our text in Mark 11. The Jews, therefore, were seeking him at the feast, and were saying, where is he? And there was a bunch of grumbling among the multitudes concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's leading the multitude astray. Controversy about the personhood, the identity, and the claims of Jesus as there is today. Verse 13, yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Because remember by now, the Jews were seeking his life. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews, therefore, were marveling, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Jesus, therefore, answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Verse 17, very important. But if any man is willing to do God's will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why then do you seek to kill me? Very important. Jesus here says to those who had all these questions and controversy, is it from heaven? Same question they're asking him now in our text. Where's his authority coming? Is he really from heaven? Is he really the Messiah? Or is he just some guy? Jesus said, if you would have responded to God's word, then you would know that my teachings are true. Look at that in verse 17. Very important for the Christian. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. You know when doubt enters into your life as a Christian? So often it comes when you're disobedient as a Christian. You know in times of tremendous spiritual growth and absolute assuredness in your faith comes? When you've been obedient in your Christian walk. When you're responding to God. Then there comes these tremendous times of growth and revelation and God speaking to you. Are you in a place in your life like that? God is speaking to you, you open his word, it's fresh, you come to church and the spirit is ministering to you through the word, or you're just like, I don't really want to read the word, I, I don't really get another sermon, okay, it's not affecting me, come on Lord, give me something good here, and you don't find yourself growing, you seem to be somewhat stagnant, you might be able to look back to last February and think, man, I'm kind of in the same place. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know the teaching. Have you been doing God's will? Have you been obedient? Disobedience for the Christian. If you're not a Christian, just trip out. This has nothing to do with you. Disobedience in the Christian will always hinder and stint your growth, your spiritual understanding, your spiritual perception, and the ability of you to hear from God clearly. Disobedience will do those things. It brings confusion, confounding and stunted growth into your life. Obedience will always open up the lines of communication with God. Why? Cuz God is so mean that when you disobey him he just goes, "I'm not going to talk to you anymore." No, that's not why. It's because when you're disobedient you remove yourself from the place of blessing. God is a giver. God desires to bless, but you got to be in the place of blessing. You understand that? How many of you have kids? You want to bless your kids, but they've got to do what you say. You understand? <laughs> son, come sit down at the table and eat. Now. Come sit down and eat. Your mom made your favorite little chicken drummet things from Trader Joe's. There's fresh ketchup. Come sit down and eat. Applesauce, all your favorite things. Don't want to. Okay, son, but just know this: as your father, I want to bless you. I want to see you grow. I want to see you receive nourishment. I want you to be healthy. But if you refuse to put yourself in the place where you can receive those things, then what can I do? I'm not the kind of father that's gonna come slap your head off and force you to eat your chicken drummets. And neither is God. God says, come into the place of blessing. Behold, I have prepared a banqueting table before you, even in the presence of your enemies. Come and sit at the banqueting. Come partake of God. Taste and see that the Lord is good, the psalmist wrote. But if we are disobedient, we remove ourselves from that place. And so we now have severed the line of communication, the line of clear revelation, the line of nourishment and growth and spiritual health. You understand? So are you growing in the Lord or do you find yourself to be stagnant? If you're stagnant, I would venture to guess that there might be some area in your life where the Lord said, do thus and so, and you said no. If that's the case, understand that God's not going to let it slide. God doesn't go, oh, you don't want to do that? Uh, Whatever. I I didn't really mean it anyway. It's just kind of a suggestion. No big deal. You don't have to do it. We'll let it slide. Let's move on to the next thing. God's not going to do that. You understand that he'll say, no, wait a minute. Come back, son. Let's deal with this issue. I'm not going to let that go in your heart. It's going to destroy you. It's sin. It's going to destroy our relationship. It's going to destroy you. It's going to have a negative, adverse effect in your life and in this world. Let's deal with it. And don't expect further revelation from God until you deal with it. You understand? It's not going to tell you more until you're faithful with that which he's already told you. And yet we want to balance that with the fact that God is patient. Oh, man, God is patient. patient. You know, I'm a, I'm a new father. My son is four years old. My daughter is eight months old. And Man, as a father, you've got to be patient. I'm learning this. I'm trying. It's amazing the patience that is required. You ever notice that the Bible, God calls us um, his children and sheep. Anybody here a shepherd or own sheep? Oh, little Georgie. Little Georgie, FHA, or what is it, FFA, Future Farmers of America. He took me to Car to see his sheep. Listen, don't be offended by this, but that is one dumb lamb. <laughs> sheep are by nature dumb, right? Am I right? Dumb. Things sneezed all over me. I was wearing my best shirt. You know, Car Pie, I wanted to look good because I was such a hooligan when I was there. I'm returning. I'm going with him. I <laughs> want to look good. This <laughs> thing sneezes all over me. It is a fact that sheep are dumb. They'll follow each other into danger. They'll follow each other off cliffs. Pigs are smarter than sheep. It would be a compliment if God said, my little piggies. <laughs> but he didn't. He said, sheep. It's okay, we can all deal with that. Not, it's not just you, it's me too. I'm a bigger sheep than you. <laughs> and children, because children are so childish. Childish. And yet God is so patient with us. Come here, little lammy. Come here, little kid. The next little vignette in our scripture is going to demonstrate for us the patience of God with his people. Turn back to Mark chapter 12. Mark 12. Okay, I'm going to make this very simple. Oh, wait, we should finish uh, the last verse in Mark 11, verse 33. And answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They weren't faithful with God's previous revelation. So under no obligation to tell them anything else. Chapter 12, now he's going to give them a parable. He's going to speak directly to these same religious leaders. It is going to condemn them for their unbelief. Chapter 12, verse 1, he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, Jesus said, and put a wall around it, and dug a vat under the wine press, and built a tower, and rented it out to vine growers, and went on a journey. Now, there are uh, these little symbols here, or not symbols, but these points of reference that correspond to things. The man who planted the vineyard is a picture of God, okay? It's a parable, the man who planned the, the, the vineyard is a picture of God. The vineyard itself is a picture of Israel. And the vine growers, those who were in charge of the condition of the vineyard, were the religious leaders or, or meant to represent the religious leaders. As homework, read Isaiah chapter 5 later. Isaiah chapter 5, it'll make it very clear to you that Jesus is speaking about God and Israel and the religious leaders here. Okay? Now look what happens, verse 2. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. This was a very normal thing in Israel at the time. A wealthy landowner would be absent from the land. He would rent the land out to farmers, and they would work the land and make a living for themselves and pay the landowner back with produce, which he would sell and make a living as well. And so he sent a slave to these vine growers saying, All right, it's time to pay up. You're on my land. This is my possession. Pay up. It says in verse 3, And they took that slave, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, it says, beating some and killing others. This is a picture of God's repeated efforts to get his people's attention. Over and over and over again throughout history, God sent his prophets and his messengers and gave his word to Israel. Don't turn away to other gods. Don't forsake me cultivate and dwell in faithfulness in the land. This is what you ought to do. This is what you don't do. Over and over and over again Israel would directly go against the word of God. He would tell them Israel, if you don't repent, then I'm going to bring another nation to judge you. Nebuchadnezzar will come and wipe you out and you will be captive to Babylon for 70 years, he told them in Jeremiah 25. But Israel would refuse to repent. Nebuchadnezzar would come. They'd be in captivity for 70 years. They'd finally get their act together other, God would bring them back to the land. Once again, they begin to fall away from God and have an evil and unbelieving heart and say, come on guys, get it right or I'll judge you again. Again, they would blow it and the Lord would say, oy vey, and he would judge them again. Same thing with Israel. Same thing with you and I. Same thing with you and I. That's why we're called sheep. That's why we're called kids of God. We seem to be obstinate and stiff-necked. How many times does the Lord have to tell us that's wrong? Now, very important thing to know about sin. Heard this recently from another pastor. Um, how's it go? Let me think here. Sin is not bad because it's wrong. Sin is wrong because it's bad. You didn't get it. Sin is not bad because it's wrong. In other words, God said, "Don't do this," so it's bad if you do that, just because God said, "Don't do this." Sin is wrong because it's bad god says don't do this because it'll harm you you understand that god gets no pleasure in sitting up in heaven and go nah that might be fun for you don't do it you want to do that seems like it might be cool for you don't want you to do it that's not our god our god says listen i'm a wise and a loving father i know it's best that will destroy you that will harm you that will harm your family and so don't do it. And Israel over and over again would ignore the Lord and fall into the same sin. And they would even beat and kill the prophets that came and said, repent. Um, go, you read Hebrews chapter 11 later on and see what Israel did with the prophets. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 23, o Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. And so he's illustrating this now to the religious leaders. Now look at verse 6. It says concerning the landowner, he had one more to send a beloved son. Who do you think that speaks of? Jesus. He had one more to send, a beloved son, and he sent him last of all to them saying, they've got to respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir, come and let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. You ought to underline that. And they took him and killed him and threw him out in the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do then? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. That is, Jesus, who was rejected by Israel, has become the capstone, the most important stone in the religious life of Israel and the world. This came about from the Lord. It is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the multitude. For they understood, listen to that, they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Have you ever been sitting in church or reading the Bible or talking to someone and some spiritual principle comes truth through and, and it convicts you? The spirit convicts you of sin? And you're like, I'm guilty of that. That's your first thought. What's your second thought? But it doesn't mean me. Isn't that your second thought? But, right, but not me. It's for somebody else because we rationalize our own sin. You see, on us, our sin doesn't look too bad. On someone else, oh, you sicko. You disgusting, slimy, just repent. You call yourself a Christian. And you do the same thing and you're like, grace, God, it's not too bad. God's not, he doesn't mean me. Even today as I'm preaching this sermon, some of you are feeling convicted. It's not me, it's the word of God. But some of you are saying, but it doesn't apply to me. It applies to you. It applies to you. It says here, and they knew, they understood, he spoke the parable against them. If there was a period there, and the next phrase was, and so they repented, everything would be wonderful in Israel today. But it says, and so they left him and went away. That's the response of so many people that come to church. They come and they're convicted by the word of God and they never come back that preacher. Hate that guy. Can't believe he said that. Wasn't me. It It was the word of God. So condemned. Wasn't me. It It was the Holy Spirit telling you, get right, man. God loves you. Repent. But the tragedy is they left him and they went away. Understand, friends, it was God's last ditch effort to send his son. There is nothing more that God can do than to give his son. What more can he give? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I wouldn't give my son for you, not for a single one of you. I would never do that. I don't love anyone here that much. But I'm not God, aren't you glad? God so loved you He gave his only begotten, unique, preexistent, all the fullness of deity dwelling in him, spotless, blameless, perfect from before the foundations of the world, king of kings, alpha and omega, first and last son on our behalf. Now, what more can God do? That is why it is insane when people say, well, if God would just do this, then I would follow him. God have mercy on you if you say something like that. What more could he do than give to his son to die a substitutionary death for you? What more could God do? And yet people get mad all the time. I can't believe the Bible says there's only one way. There should be lots of ways to God. Lots of ways is better. Use this. If you were driving down the road and you had to get somewhere and all of a sudden you came to an intersection and there were 60 roads going in different ways... Wouldn't you much prefer that there were just one that said, this is the way? That would be so much easier. Forget I'm too confused. Too many roads. One road, this is the way you go. That's what God did. God said, listen, I'm going to make it very simple for you, Israel. Going to give my son last-ditch effort. This is all I can give. It's a maximum that God can do. He is the only way. You don't have to mess around with any other ways. You don't have to worry. You don't got to search. You don't got to flip out. You don't got to wonder. Come to my son, repent, receive his forgiveness, and eternity in heaven is guaranteed for you. Couldn't make it any easier for you. It didn't come cheap. It was the blood of the spotless lamb. It wasn't free. He paid with his life. But what more could God possibly do? It's the absolute most that God could do. And because God can't do any more, in consequence, there remains nothing else if you reject Jesus Christ. If you reject Jesus Christ, there is no second chance for you after death. Bible teaches very clearly in the book of Hebrews, it is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. You don't die and get a second shot. Oh, I didn't know. Let me rethink it. Okay, now I see that this is real, this eternity thing, heaven, hell. Let me, just give me a minute here, God. Now is your minute. Now is the time to decide what to do with Jesus. Don't be like these religious leaders. Don't reject Jesus Christ. God is so loving. He's so patient. Martin Luther. Study the the life of Martin Luther. He was a trip. Anyone see that movie, Luther? It was a cool movie. Uh, He held some beliefs that were sad, but he said some funny things. One of the things he said was this. If I were God and the world treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. Martin Luther, that wasn't in in the movie. Should have put that in the movie. Thankfully, Martin Luther isn't God and God is not like any man. God is patient and long-suffering. Charles Spurgeon said it beautifully. If you reject Jesus, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing for you. If you kill him, he dies to redeem you. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love Made manifest. It is God's absolute best given for you. But if you reject the Lord as these religious leaders do, then the only thing that is left is the severity of God. Charles Spurgeon also said, Thou puttest thy finger into the very eye of God when thou dost slight his Son. Why did these religious leaders in our text here, and those represented in the parable, why did they reject the landowner's son when he was sent? Why were they rejecting Jesus? Why do people reject Jesus today? It's very clear in verse 7. Read verse 7. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Why did they reject Jesus? Because they didn't want to be accountable to God. They wanted their life to be their own. They wanted to be the captains of their own ships, the kings of their own destiny. They didn't want to have to live with any accountability to a creator God. They wanted their lives to be their own, even though it says they knew that they spoke of Him. They wanted to pursue their own agenda, their own pleasure, and serve themselves instead of God. Jesus said in Matthew 16, What does it profit you, O man, to gain the whole world and to lose your soul? And yet, in reality, that is the reason that most people reject Jesus Christ today. It's not for lack of evidence. It's because they don't want to be held accountable for their actions. They want to live how they want to live. That would be wonderful if there were no God, but there is a God. He's a creator. He's a lawmaker. He's wonderful and he's loving, but he's a righteous judge, and we will all be held accountable. I want you to know, Christians, 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's for the Christian right now. If God has shown you something, do it. You're not the captain of your own ship. You're not the king of your own destiny. Submit yourself to God. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you at the proper time. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, with the precious blood of the Lamb. Therefore, glorify God in all you do. And that is the simple lesson of our last couple of verses. And they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. And they came, verse 13 of Mark 12, now verse 14. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and deferred to no one and that you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful? to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at it. Pharisees were representing here the hopes of Israel. They wanted to catch Jesus and saying, Yeah, you've got to pay tax to the Romans. And they would turn around and say to Israel, How can you say this is Israel's Messiah telling us to pay money to the oppressive government? The Herodians were those who were loyal to the house of Herod, the Roman government. They wanted to catch Jesus saying, no, you don't got to pay no taxes, Israel. And they would say, this guy is guilty of treason against Caesar. They had him in a catch-22. But Jesus is so smart, isn't he? I mean, he's a God of the universe. He's very smart. So he says, give me one of these coins to look at. Verse 16, and they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar, Caesar's picture, and his name was on there. So Jesus said to them, verse 17, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but render to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Caesar's face is on this money. His name is on it. Give it to Caesar. Pay the government. Pay your taxes. I don't want to do that sermon right now but I could give you a sermon right here on why we ought to pay our taxes and submit to government. That's not the focus. Here's the focus. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Do your duty as a citizen, but make sure that you render to God that which is God's, whose likeness and inscription is upon us. We were made in the likeness and in the image of God, the Bible says. Therefore, we must render. The word means to pay back, to pay a debt, give ourselves to God in fullness. He deserves nothing less than all that we are, all that we have to give. Is there anything that God has shown you in the recent past that you've ignored, and it's stunted your spiritual growth? My challenge for you today is to do it, to be obedient in that thing. Don't blow it off. Is there any area that you've been keeping from Him that you need to render unto Him? If we were to be honest in here, if we were to shut the doors right now, and pretend like it's just us and nobody else would ever hear. If we were to be honest, there's something that we're all holding back from the Lord, each one of us, some little area in our heart that we reserve for ourselves. We think we have some right to our own life. God, you can have this and that and the other, but I'm keeping this. I like doing this. This is fun for me. Lord, turn a blind eye to this. He doesn't. And it's wrong because it's bad because it'll mess your heart up, your life. It'll hurt and injure and hinder you. That's why God wants to deal with it. God, we thank you for your perfect word. I hope, Father, that I haven't messed it up in any way today, but you through me have communicated clearly what is in your word. I ask God that if there's anyone in here who has never repented of their sins and asked you, God, to save them, That have never realized that Jesus paid the price on the cross for their sins. I ask that today they would do so. If that's you, it's a simple prayer in your heart. You just need to say, God, I'm a sinner. I've been wrong. I realize now you died for me. Come and save me, God. Forgive me for my sins. I repent. That moment, the Bible says that you're a brand new creation all the sins of the past are wiped away and you're given a second chance in in life and every time you fail from here on out, he'll forgive you and love you and he'll never leave you or forsake you and when you die, you will be secure in heaven with him. And if there be any of us, God, that would just not be rendering unto you all that is yours, teach us what that means. Show us how to render unto God things that are God's. Really, God, every good and perfect gift is from you. Nothing is our own. Help us to come to you to give you all that we are. I'm going to ask that we just enter into a time of reflection and prayer and worship. The prayer team will be up here on your right, this little area to the right of the stage. Communion is up here got an issue that needs prayer today, if you need to come and get on your knees and repent or just worship, do business with God. This is the most important time of the service. When We just marinate in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Let him minister to our hearts that which we've heard. So give God this time. Press in. Don't tune out.